Hey, it's Tom with Forging Ahead, and I'm lucky enough to have Chris Sellen with me this morning. Chris, do you want to take a minute and introduce yourself, however you like to be introduced? Uh, sure. Um, that's great. Chris Sellen's a great way to introduce me. <laughs> uh, I'm the CEO of Dipjar, as Tom knows, and hopefully some of you know. Uh, I've been at the company for about a year and a half, uh, based in downtown Boston, although we're in the process of moving to Cambridge at the beginning of March. Cool. And um, I haven't had a chance to talk to somebody with as much seasoning as you had. So the uh, the approach I'd like to take is a little bit different. And I think um, usually like the first place I go to research whoever I'm going to chat with is LinkedIn. So I want to just read to you your about section on LinkedIn and um, and let you riff on that a little bit. Hopefully that's not too goofy of a way to start. But what I have no, is- that works for me. I have a passion for growth and working with great teams and have helped lead a number of early and expansion stage companies through IPO and acquisition. I have a broad and deep operating experience in startup, expansion stage, and turnaround situations, having developed hands-on expertise in areas such as go-to-market strategy, strategic alliances, M&A, corporate development. There's a lot there. Do you want to uh, pick something off and, and get us rolling? Yeah. Um, seasoning is a very politically correct way to say it. So thanks. But yeah, I've been doing this, <laughs> been doing this for a while. Um, so yeah, I mean, most of my background is on the go-to-market side in mostly earlier stage businesses, but I've definitely worked for quite a few, had a pretty long career and, you know, I've been lucky. It's been fun. Um, I, you know, earlier in my career when I was less seasoned, I sort of envisioned myself as a startup guy, um, I actually worked for a while, I guess it was in my late 20s, early 30s at a firm called the Yankee Group. And I worked for a guy named Howard Anderson, who's probably one of the real iconic figures in the Boston tech scene. Howard's still out there. He, I believe he teaches part-time at Sloan these days. He was teaching at uh, HBS and Sloan, teaching entrepreneurship courses. He was one of the founders of Battery Ventures. He was the founder of the Yankee Group. And you know, I, when I worked for Howard for a couple of years, I kind of got a chance to step back and look at the startup world. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of want to dive in. And I dove in. Um, what I found was what I was particularly good at, or maybe it found me, was situations where you know, startups very typically go through a cycle. Some of them are lucky, right? They hit it. They hit the right model, the right market, the right product right from the beginning. But a lot of them go through periods of adjustments, you know, with things that are called pivots and in some cases might get themselves in some trouble. And I found that the situations that either I found them, they found me, but in a lot of ways are the most gratifying were, you know, places where there was sort of course corrections needed. And some of that was on the go to market side. Um, the things that I do, partnerships, alliances, which leads to exits, right? Things like M&A, in some cases, getting acquired, doing acquisitions, um, or in some cases, IPOs as well. So, but, you know, there's a lot of work that goes in before that. A lot of it is external. I've kind of always been kind of an outside guy, whether it's biz dev, marketing, sales, done all those roles. But, but, um, but yeah, so I've kind of had a, had a lot of background helping companies that, you know, maybe started off with uh, some money or an idea or both, ideally, right? And like, we're going to go change the world this way. And then that didn't quite work out. But at the same time, they built something, right? So how do we reposition it? How do we find the right kind of partners? And how do we find the right strategy to take things forward? So that's that's what I've done a lot of. Um, I have spent a lot of time. I'm not originally from Boston, actually. I'm originally from the New York area, North Jersey, to be specific. But I've been up in Boston over 25 years now. Um, I've always been an East Coast guy. I've 
toyed a couple of times with kind of moving out to the West Coast, obviously Silicon Valley, Bay Area. Um, and I've spent a ton of time out there, but I've never quite made the move. I, I really like Boston. I really like the ecosystem here. You know, I'm kind of settled in at this point and, um, you know, looking to sort of support growing businesses around here and, and support, well, one in particular right now, obviously, but the ecosystem as well, because I think that's one of the great things about Boston is how the ecosystem works together. So anyway, I just said a whole lot as well, but hopefully that is a good kind of riff on uh, uh, what you, the way you started. So. Yeah, that's great, Chris. Can you talk a little bit more about go to market, you know, and and talk about what that means? And I guess maybe using Dipjar or use a different experience. But when you show up mm-hmm. and you're tasked with how you define go to market, like what are some of the first things that you do? Um, well, you know, there's there's kind of the and I wouldn't call it basic blocking and tackling, but the blocking and tackling stuff around sales and marketing, right? Which is the direct go to market side, um, which is you know put the right strategies and people and team in place. And I've been part of that team and been the team and built the team at different different places through my career. But that's the you know we we have this thing to sell product, service, SaaS, whatever it may be. Um, you know, let's find the right types of customers. Let's figure out how to craft our message. Let's figure out where those customers are and let's go after them. Right. So that's, that's the direct part of it. Um, where again, kind of the situations that I think more and more in my career have also found me is the more indirect route to market, which, you know, if you're, if you do it right, can be an accelerant, but if you do it wrong, can be a massive waste of resources, which is, you know, partnering. And, and partnering means a whole heck of a lot of things, but that's like what relation, you know, what relationships do we put in place and how do we structure those relationships to accelerate our growth, but they're not necessarily the organizations that we're selling to, you know, I always categorize partnerships in kind of three ways and it's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's uh, sell through, sell with, and, and in some cases sell to, which are sort of like OEM deals when you might embed your product in another company's product, but I've done a lot of that. So, so come back to your question. Um, that's a part of go to market too. I think what companies need to figure out is kind of the balance they want to take based on what they have to sell and, you know, based on what has or hasn't worked on the lessons they've learned with whatever history they've had under their belt. Um, you know, some products lend themselves very well to selling direct other products lend themselves much better to an indirect model. Um, it, it, you need to make sort of decisions because um, trying to have your cake and eat it too and just say, yeah, all of that um, usually isn't refined enough. So it's kind of a matter of balance, and it, but it's really dependent on the company. So just to try to go like one level of detail deeper, how do you coach somebody through that? So when you show up and you've got a company at a stage where they've had a little bit of success, a little bit of money, and you get brought in to, you know, as you called it, like a course correction or a repositioning, how -hmm. do you start coaching people through whether it is, let's go direct to the customer or let's go find a channel that can help us hit the gas? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, that's probably a good time to talk about my, the current um, selling that we're doing at Dipjar, the current go to market strategy at Dipjar. Um, and again, I did come in well into the company's life cycle. Dipjar was actually started in 2012, actually really officially late 2011. So it's about a eight plus year old company at this point. When it was actually started in New York, it was not started in Boston. 
Um, but some of the investors were in Boston. So some of the early investors, particularly an organization called Bolton, another called Project 11, invested in the company early on. But early on, two founders with an idea. Um, and the idea was actually to create a system for tipping. Um, you sort of have to mentally rewind a little bit to like the 2012-ish timeframe. By the way, I wasn't here at the time, so let me be clear on that. But I do remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago, 2012, where a couple things were happening. Um, credit cards were being used much more widely for everything, not just for like big purchases, but like, you know, walking into a coffee shop or a pub and I'm going to buy a coffee or a beer. Um, but the credit card, the, the systems they used to kind of manage the credit cards, there were still a lot of paper slips. There was still a lot of, you know, as they sort of call the knuckle busters, those things you slide back and forth. And so if you wanted to pay via credit card for your coffee, First of all, it wasn't always like the most convenient to have to go through all of that. But then if you did, there wasn't always an easy way to leave a tip. You know, not even all the slips even had a space for tips back then. I know this seems like ancient history, but it wasn't that long ago. So so the tip jar, the, the two founders, uh, their names were Ryder and Jordan, decided, hey, we can solve this problem and help these, you know, bartenders and baristas make a little extra money. Let's kind of create this electronic device. And there's kind of a platform behind it for tipping. All right. So... So fast forward a few years, okay? So the, and they raise enough money, build the device, get it to market, sold a bunch of them, gave a bunch of them out. They started seeding the market with these products, but the payments industry changed. And so now, obviously, if you walk into a pub or probably coffee shops, a better example because they tend to have more of the stuff out front. Um, you tend to see, you know, you've got organ companies like Square, you've got Toast, who's another Boston company. They've got these kind of fully integrated points of sale. That, you know, the idea that I need a separate device for tipping is not really much of a market anymore, right? So, so the market, the intent of the company at the time was good and it looked like an opportunity. That's why the investors invested, but the market changed and that market didn't materialize. So the company went through some tough times. It was struggling for a while, again, predating me. Um, but then they sort of discovered, and as I understand it, it was a little bit intent, but a little bit also good luck that people were walking into coffee shops and seeing this device there to take tips. And they're like, oh, can I use it for my church or my school? And so nonprofits started buying the product. And they also started selling the things online because initially they were trying to sell them to sales people, but then they started using the online channel or go to market. So the online channel started working and nonprofits started buying the product. The nice thing about nonprofits too is that the economics were better because another thing that hasn't changed too much in the credit card industry is that there's obviously a fee with every transaction. And part of it is percentage. People know about sort of the interchange fees, the Visa's MasterCard's Amex charge, but there's also a fixed fee as well. And particularly for small dollar, like dollar, $2, which is what a tip typically is, those fees, those fees eat up a lot of the money that either goes to the tippee or is available for like the service providers. But when you're doing nonprofit, 10, 20, $50 donations, um, those fees aren't so bad, right? So, so for a lot of reasons, nonprofits was a better market, but the company was kind of, you know, not in a great place um, that, you know, some of the original investors, the company was far enough along that some of the original investors were probably more interested in figuring out what their exit strategy is than putting more money in. But, you know, at the same time, you have a business that's actually starting to grow. And by the way, the other thing too, coming in is most of my background is in the software industry and coming into what at the time was really kind of positioning itself mainly as a hardware company. Um, the blessing and the curse about the fact that our 
our name Dipjar is both the company name and the product that we're best known for. And the Dipjar is a physical thing, but is that the perception among a lot of investors was we were kind of a, a hardware company that had been around for a couple of years, wasn't really scaling, but we had this whole software platform behind the hardware because these are connected devices that could be exploited. So, so anyway, a lot of this started before I came on board, truthfully. I mean, certainly the nonprofit uh, part of it started before I came on board. The online part of it, we started working with Shopify, came on board. Shopify has been really successful, even though we're not the typical Shopify customer is a retailer and we're selling mostly to nonprofits these days, but it works really well. So that all started before I came here. But I guess, you know, some of the refinement around a couple of things around really tightening up and now segmenting our nonprofit strategy because nonprofit means a lot of things. I mean, we are almost entirely focused on nonprofits, but a church, a zoo, an aquarium, an animal shelter, a cause, you know, we have tons of causes. Um, there's so many different segments, higher education, they all are almost different markets. So we're really doing a lot more segmentation now and having some success with that, particularly given some of the new products that I can talk about. We've got some new software assets that really work well for like a any nonprofit that has like a, a lobby or a place where they get a lot of foot traffic, where we can not just put a dip jar, but start putting some of our software. We've got this new thing called Spark. So we're having a lot of luck with that. So, you know, by kind of I wouldn't say I dramatically changed the go-to-market here, but we're getting a lot more refined about how we're going after it, and it's really helped. And then the other thing, to get back to what I've done a lot of, is partners and channels. Um, and, you know, to me, channels is always kind of an oversimplified word because it just means, well, people are going to resell your product. But in a way, like, a channel is a partner. However you structure the partnership, whether they're selling it or you're selling it, that helps you get deeper. So in the church or more broadly the faith-based space as well um where we've had some success we have about a hundred we have by the way we sold dip jars to about five thousand organizations that includes some of the early tipping customers so we've got about five thousand customers some of the early tipping customers aren't so active anymore but we still got about 37 3800 active customers somewhere around 200 of those are what we call faith-based institutions which are churches mosques synagogues um, you know, we don't typically wind up in, say, the collection plate, but a lot of times we're in kind of the building lobby. If there's a fundraising drive to, you know, paint the building, repave the parking lot, if they're having dinners or other types of events, they use the dip jars. But um, we found a partner, a company called Banco Payments, who is out of, I think they're out of Minneapolis, so they've also got a big office in Atlanta. They have 20,000 churches. And by the way, they also have a full suite of services for faith-based institutions, right? So it's, you know, for, um, I don't know if it's tithing or I forget what the specific terminology, but there's obviously a specific terminology around how churches collect money. There's obviously a cash still that happens at the collection plate. There's a lot of different types of systems. There's kiosks. And of course, there's a lot of online giving and uh, pledging that's going on. It's probably more the word that I was looking for. I, tithing, there's other words for pledging in that market. But obviously, as you can tell from the fact that I'm sort of struggling from words here, they know a heck of a lot more about that market than we do. And they've also got a heck of a lot more stuff to sell in that market and value, better way to say it, to deliver to the customers. So we set up a partnership with them. So, And what we're doing now is we're not forcibly, if we've got some of the you know 100 or 50 or so that bought from us directly, they can keep working with us if they want to, but we're kind of encouraging them, hey, go work with this partner. And at the same time, they're introducing us to, you know, their 20,000 plus 
uh, churches mostly that they work with. And so it's a great partnership, right? So we add value to what they do. They add value to what we do. Um, and so those kinds of partnerships and alliances, that's one that's live right now. We haven't actually publicly announced it, but it is up and running. And I'm working on a few others that look like that as well. Does that make sense? It does. It makes great sense. I guess um, trying to think about, um, there's a lot there, but I guess the the question that I have is, do you show up, like when you show up at Dip Jar, is there a Chris Sellen playbook or is it custom slash unique to the situation and company that you're joining? Um, I personally tend to think it's got to be more unique than packaged, but there are pieces of it that are certainly packaged up. For instance, the um, I was actually just talking to the guy, the guy who kind of really brought me in here is Kenny Peter Shields. And he's a guy I worked for who is my CEO at a number of companies I've worked for in my past. Peter and I've worked together at, depending on how you count, like five or six different places. So Peter was calling me this morning. He really specializes in kind of direct sales and we're starting to scale our sales team now. And he's been, he, he does this thing where sometimes he'll pop up on our site or he'll make phone calls and kind of pretend he's a customer because he wants to see how the salespeople are doing. And he was, he was pointing out to me that there's a fair amount of variance in the message that is coming from, and some's good, some's not so good. So that kind of thing, like, you know, he's like, Hey, we really need a script here for what people are going to say when they're reaching out to customers. And he's right. So some of it's scripted, but it doesn't actually mean I'm going to walk in with the script. The script is going to be based on, um, you know, what, what we're selling, but a lot of it has to be customized to the organization and, you know, how successful or not the organization has been with, you know, what's working, what's not. So I guess some of the ingredients might be a little bit packaged, but how they're kind of mixed together and baked as a cake is, is a uh, pretty custom. And then that continues to evolve over time. The, um, it's so interesting The I guess something is, this is going to be a little bit of a hard transition, but with one eye on the clock here, something that I want to at least get on the table is, um, some of the words in your LinkedIn section that I read to you to start talking about IPOs and acquisitions and m as I guess maybe use the phrase exit. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really curious to hear either some lessons that you've learned or um, how you would coach like a founder through even just thinking about those as a topic. I realize that's really broad, but maybe you mm-hmm. can do something with that. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll use a line that it's funny. I, I use this line a lot and I didn't exactly think I created it. I heard it somewhere. I read the other day, it might be a little bit overused, but I don't care. And that's, you know, the best deals are bought, not sold. Right. And whether your exit strategy is to go public or to get acquired, first of all, when you take investor money, they care a lot about the exits because investors invest because eventually they want their money back and then some, and usually, and then quite a bit of some. So they want to know how you're thinking about, you know, how this company is eventually going to allow your investors to make a return. So, and by the way, that's true. Even if you don't have investors, you should care about it. But, you know, certainly in the tech community, we've almost essentially all, except for pure bootstrap companies, you have investors, right? So you have to be thinking about that. But I think the biggest mistake that I see other organizations make. And this, by the way, includes some places that I've worked and, you know, either turn it around or you decide this is the right place is 
you know, not thinking about that strategically early enough. To me, you have to be thinking about it right from the beginning. You have to, you have to start. Um, I was talking to my attorney the other day, and he said, you know, big part of the CEO's job is to have this list of like, you know, the five companies you might want to buy some point, and the five companies you might want to have buy you at some point, and build relationships with them. And by the way, ideally build partnerships with them because the best way, going back to my original line about the best deals are bought, not sold, you know, getting acquired, the best way to get acquired is for the other organization that acquires you to be reaching out to you saying, hey, I want to buy your business. By the way, the best way for that to happen is for you to be building a partnership with them that is very successful for them. So they're like, wow, you know, this partnership's going so well that we should just acquire this company because that's the way you're going to get a great exit and a great valuation. Now, an IPO is essentially a form of acquisition, except, you know, you're selling your stocks, you're selling your shares publicly on the stock market instead of selling to another organization, right? So it's kind of the same flavor, the same thing. And, you know, if you do a good job, look, the thing, the thing I also say is you can't really control who might want to buy you and why they might want to buy you at what time this is goes back to sort of that mistake because you know when companies are like when companies get in trouble and they're like oh my god i have to sell you know we have to sell the business then they just it, usually they'll hire a banker or maybe they'll just start calling around to places they think might want to acquire them and say hey you know do you need to buy us and usually they're in that position because they've got some kind of end of runway situation coming up right so time short you don't know where that other organization is and they're thinking, they may be thinking about doing acquisitions, they may be having issues of their own. You have no control over that. But if you build the right structure and the right partnerships and the right relationships that are actually succeeding, you're gonna have situations where the other organizations are come to, gonna come to you. And then of course, once those situations start to occur, then that opens up other opportunities as well. And it puts you in a position where you're just in a much more better position because you're essentially selling from you know, a position of strength um, as opposed to, you know, oh, my God, we need to get out because we're going to run out of money in three months, six months, what have you. Um, so the best way to not get there is be thinking about strategically from day one. And so that's a lot of, I don't know, maybe it's how my mind works. It's really where I think probably the most value that I'm not saying I haven't provided value in kind of the direct side, the marketing side, but you know, that's that's the kind of stuff that I spend a lot of time on. And I have spent a lot of time on here and elsewhere um, in my career. So that actually wasn't that tough of a transition. But hopefully that kind of helps answer your question. Um, it does. It's it's um, I was kind of furiously taking notes, even though we're recording the five companies that you'd like to acquire and five people that maybe are attractive buyers of your organization is a huge takeaway, something that I don't have on paper, but it's yeah, really early for way, us. To, but go ahead. To, Sorry. To give credit on that, I should credit that to Harry Hansen, who's our corporate counsel of Feinberg Hansen. Great, great law firm. Um, I really, uh, I really have come to uh, love my lawyers in this role. So anyway, yeah. Great. It's been great. But since we kind of recapitalized the company last year, I spent a lot of time with them, but that definitely, Harry gets credit for that one. So got it. Cool. Um, as we kind of come to start wrapping this thing up, I'd love to see if we can pull out a couple of like principles, regardless of the situation. And I know that everything's custom. Like I'm sure that you show up and you do a heck of a lot of like listening, investigating and researching and, and going out and talking to existing customers. But what are some things, regardless of the situation 
where you show up that you believe in that you're going to apply to any company? Um, well, first of all, we haven't really talked about this and I think it's an important topic to touch on is culture. I think, you know, company culture is huge. And when you come into an organization that has struggled, um, you typically see, you know, a couple of different types of people. I don't know. I was going to say two, but it's probably more than two, but there's people who are, you know, committed to the organization. They're going to double down and they're going to fix things. And then there's people who are kind of like half checked out and, you know, it's very important to kind of identify, you know, who's really on board first of all, and then figure out what to do about who's not on board. And, you know, sometimes they can be brought on board, sometimes they can't, but you know, the, the sort of, you really can't doubt, right? You can kind of privately doubt, but you really have to, as an organization say, you know, this is what we're doing. This is, look, we're going to try some stuff. Not everything's going to work out, but you know, you got to be on the bus, right? You got to have people on the bus and that's a cultural thing. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of nuance to that. I mean, we could, I'm, by the way, I'm not a culture expert per se, but I'm just sort of maybe standing up for the importance of it and, um, understanding who is and isn't on the bus and making sure that, you know, you've got a team that's committed to the mission because, you know, when you get the people who are just grumpy, complaining, checked out, it's so poisonous to the rest of the organization. And it's such a motivation killer for, you know, people who are really trying to work hard and turn things around to fix things. You know, the interesting thing about a company that has struggled for a while usually has learned some lessons and those lessons are massively valuable. So because everybody's like, oh, I'll just start another company and start with a clean sheet of paper. But then you're like starting from zero again. So, you know, so a lot of times, and I, I think the dip jar certainly qualifies, right? There were some hard lessons learned here, but there was also a lot of good. I mean, the best thing about it was we already had a fully developed product that's actually pretty mature and people like it and people buy it. So like we have like real revenue and we have both kind of revenue when they buy the product and we have a recurring revenue stream from subscriptions and kind of the ongoing relationship we have with our customers that was totally unexploited. So, so for as much as, you know, there had been situated things here that weren't going in the right direction, we had a lot of good stuff to build on. I mean, you know, you come and you start with like, Oh, I'll just start over. Well, then you got no product, you got no customers, you got no revenue. All you have is an idea. We had a lot of that here. So, but, you know, just being able to build on that, but making sure we had the right team on the bus. And, you know, it's taken some time. There's been some transitions here without going into details. But, you know, for the most part, I would say one of the things that really impressed me about this organization, one of the reasons I took this job was that the people here were really pretty committed to the mission, both of the company and also because we serve the nonprofit space because of the types of organizations that we're helping. Um, you know, selling to nonprofits is always interesting because, and I hadn't really done too much in this market before a little bit here and there, but they're obviously price sensitive for obvious reasons. They're nonprofits. Uh, every single one of my customers can tell me a good reason why I should give them my product for free, but obviously I wouldn't have a business if I did that. So I can't. Um, but at the same time, we try to be reasonable about it. But anyway, going back to it, people were committed to the mission. They were committed to, you know, the space that we're in. There was definitely some adjustments we've needed to make, but, you know, they haven't been wrenching adjustments by any means. And, you know, now they've been here kind of a year and a half. I think I, I look back, I mean, I say this to people internally all the time. It's like day to day, you may not feel like you're making progress, but then when you look back at a couple months, a couple of years, it's been a year and a half so far, you're like, wow, we really came a long way. And that's very, very gratifying. And I think for the people who are on the bus, 
um, ultimately, to me at least, that's the most rewarding part. So, so I, th- I think that's so great. We're at uh, 28 minutes, so let's wrap this thing okay. up. And I have a small ask to maybe do this again with you in a month or six weeks because I feel like we could um, we could go for quite a bit longer. So if you're open to it, I'd love to do that. Yeah, I'm open to it. Hopefully, get enough people listening and responding that they're open to that too. But <laughs> open to it anytime. Awesome, so. Chris. Thanks so much. That was really fun. Okay. Do you want to give us um, give us where people can find out about Dipjar too? Yeah, it's pretty simple. www.dipjar.com. Um, our website is uh, you know it's pretty straightforward, and uh, you can buy one there if you like, or you can just learn more about the organization, and you can drop me a note at chris.selland.dipjar.com. Always happy to hear from people, or uh, or find me on LinkedIn if you'd like as well. Awesome. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks so much, Tom. Talk All to right. you soon. Take care. Bye bye.